You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Over the last three years, we've seen that the president of the largest Christian university in America resigned over an adultery scandal. A prominent evangelical pastor tried to hire a hitman to kill his son-in-law, and a prominent Christian apologist used ministry funds to conceal his hidden life filled with sexual immorality. And those are just three high-profile stories out of many, many others that could be told in big churches or in small churches or even in parachurch ministries. Leadership misconduct is tragically common in Christian circles to the point where it has become proverbial in the unbelieving world. Now, when we hear about Christian leadership scandals, we may be appalled. We may imagine this is some new phenomenon, but it isn't. The early church dealt with corruption among its leaders, just like the modern church does. And even before the birth of the church at Pentecost, false religious leaders were a huge problem for God's people. And that's what we're going to see today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're going to be in Matthew 21, verses 18 to 46, in which Jesus exposes the falsity of the religious leaders of his day. So this morning we're going to learn about characteristics of false religious leaders that we need to learn so that we can hone our discernment and protect ourselves from them. But more than that, I think today what we need to learn about are the characteristics of a false profession of faith. And we need to learn this for our own sakes. Because Matthew's Gospel has warned us that on the last day, there will be many people who believe themselves to be saved and will find out tragically too late that they weren't. So we need to learn about characteristics of false professions today to prompt us to to godly self-examination. And so this morning we're going to see four contrasts between false professions and true professions. First, we're going to see false profession is characterized by hypocrisy rather than sincere, humble faith. Second, we'll see that false profession is characterized by playing insincere word games rather than honest, God-fearing speech. Third, we'll see that false profession is characterized by giving God lip service rather than actual repentance. And fourth, we'll see that false profession is characterized by opposing Jesus rather than loving Him. So let's jump into our first point, which tells us that false profession is characterized by hypocrisy rather than a humble, sincere faith. We're in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and last week we saw that Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem, and then he cleansed the temple. And then we saw he left Jerusalem, because the city was really crowded because it was Passover time. So to get lodging, you, you pretty much had to stay outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus did that in a village about two miles away on the Mount of Olives called Bethany. And as we pick up this morning, it's now... Uh, It's now morning time, and Jesus leaves Bethany, and he heads back to Jerusalem. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. 
In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Now, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is hungry. I guess he didn't eat breakfast that morning. And so as he goes to Jerusalem, he sees this fig tree beside the road. Now, we probably don't know much about fig trees today. So let me tell you what we need to know for this story to make sense. Mark's gospel tells us that it was not yet the season for figs to be ripe, but it was springtime. And in the spring, there would be some fig trees that blossomed early that had edible fruit. Now, how would you know the fig trees that had blossomed early from those that had not? Well, fig trees usually produce leaves only after they produce fruit. And here's a tree that has leaves on it. So it ought to have fruit as well. But when Jesus examines it, it has no fruit. So Jesus curses the tree and it quickly withers and dies. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that, in fact, this incident took place over two days. That first Jesus cursed the tree and then later it was observed by the disciples. Matthew here is giving us a summary of this whole incident. So it reads like it happened all at once. But either way, this is an astonishing miracle. Now, we might be astonished by what Jesus does here. Why is Jesus cursing a plant? And the answer is, he isn't. Okay, this is a symbolic act. This is what the commentaries call an acted-out parable. And we can understand its meaning when we interpret it in light of the events surrounding it. Right before this happens in Matthew, we find Jesus judging the commercial exploitation in the temple. And right after it, we find Jesus being harassed by the wicked religious leaders of Israel. So this fig tree is symbolic of the religious practice of Israel in Jesus' day, as seen in its temple and its leadership. And Jesus' act towards this tree is expressing something about that religious practice, something that Jeremiah had also seen in his day. Jeremiah 8.13, God says, When I would gather them, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Israel's religious practice had come from God. It should have been fruitful, but instead it has become spiritually barren. And more than that, it has become hypocritical. There is an outward show of righteousness. Like the fig tree, it has leaves. There's an appearance of fruitfulness, but upon close inspection the tree is revealed to be empty. Their so-called righteousness is a false performance. And so Jesus curses the fig tree with death and perpetual barrenness. And what he's doing here is he's saying, this religious system of Israel is going to end. Now, based on what Jesus does here, we can understand that God expects those who claim to belong to him to bear good fruit. That's something we've seen before in this book. Way back with John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Friends, a real connection with God is not something that's manifest only in words or in some outward show. No, it is, it is manifested in what we see in life, what our lives produce. And John the Baptist said, that which lacks good fruit is liable to judgment. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets. Here's a test for religious leaders who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. See, the fruit, the product of our lives, it reflects our genuineness, just like with a tree, right? You're not going to get oranges from an apple tree. You're not going to get good fruit from a bad tree. You're not going to get bad fruit from a good tree. And then we've got to ask, well, what kind of tree produces no fruit? One that's dead. And I think that's Jesus' point here. Later in Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to some churches, and one of them, the church in Sardis, he says, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're actually dead. See, Jesus knows that's happening because what that church was producing was false, just like in his day back 2,000 years ago. What he sees happening in the temple is false. What's going on in the, in the lives of its leaders is hypocrisy. And Jesus has pointed this out before in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the religious elites of the day, they did some seemingly good deeds, but they did them not because they cared about God, they did them to get men's applause. So when they prayed, they made sure to do it on the street corner really loudly and everybody would look at them. Or they gave money to the poor, somebody would blow a trumpet and get everybody's attention and say, oh, how righteous. In the same way, these guys' doctrine was contrary to God's heart. The Pharisees of the day urged hating your enemies and pursuing personal vengeance. They had a very permissive view of divorce and remarriage. We're going to see in just a minute. They developed a complex system to justify dishonesty. None of that reflects God's heart. God's heart wants not only our outward righteousness, but our inner conformity to His holiness. What God wants is what Jesus spoke about in the Beatitudes that we should be humble and grieve our sin and desire righteousness and purity, that we should show mercy and be peacemakers and patiently endure persecution. That's the fruit that's produced by a real relationship with God. Or think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friends, do our lives reflect this kind of fruit? Do we desire righteousness more than we used to? Do we grieve our sin and pursue inner purity? How do we treat others with strife or with the desire to make peace? Do we care about God not only in our outward acts but in our inner lives? Friends, what kind of fruit do our lives bear? Do we evidence arrogance, impurity, and mercilessness? Do we rationalize our sin and lie to ourselves, saying God's okay with this? Do we do things that seem to be religious, like come to church or give money to the poor, just so that we get the approval of those around us, or because of social pressure, or because of our reputations? 
Friends, we've got to remember that Jesus warned in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A lifestyle of hypocrisy doesn't end happily. It ends where the broad road leads. Of Matthew 7, it leads to destruction and hell. And a life bereft of gospel fruit is under the, the, the curse, the same curse Jesus pronounced on that fig tree so long ago. So we see here that a settled, unrepentant lifestyle of hypocrisy characterizes a false profession of faith. But now we see a contrast to this. We see an example of true faith. So the disciples have seen this miracle, and they're astonished by it, and they ask Jesus about it. Look at verse 20. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now Jesus said something similar to this back in chapter 17, so I generally would point you to that sermon as we talk about this, uh, these verses. But here and there, he both, in both places, he talks about prayer that can move mountains. And we pointed out in chapter 17 that this phrase, moving mountains, was in the first century a phrase used by Jewish people to talk about impossible things. So when Jesus talks about prayer that can move mountains, he's talking about God being able to do anything because God's power is limitless. And the first time Jesus talked about this to the disciples was right after the disciples had failed. You might remember back in chapter 17, they fail to liberate a child from demonic possession. And Jesus says, you needed to do this praying in faith. But they didn't, and so they got nothing. And that's what we should expect, friends, when we don't pray, or when we pray and fail to believe that God will answer us. We will indeed get nothing. But if we pray with faith, God may answer us favorably, if what we're praying is in alignment with His will. And when God answers us, He can do astonishing, seemingly impossible things because nothing is too difficult for God. So we should pray with faith. But why in the middle of this bleak passage about these false religious leaders do we find this instruction? And I think the answer is that this idea of praying with faith forms a powerful contrast to all of that hypocrisy in Jerusalem. The religious elites of Jesus' day were arrogant. They had no real regard for God. But the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about here is the opposite of that. This is a humble prayer, a prayer that reminds us of our inability and our need for God to help us. And I point this out here because often people quote these verses not as, a, as encouraging humble prayer, but as claiming that they have some kind of power through these verses to issue commands and bend God's will to their word. Friends, that's nonsense. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is commending prayer, which is a humble declaration that we need God's help and that we ask Him to utilize His power in alignment with His will, not just ours. So true prayer, prayer offered with faith, is an act of belief because it confesses that God is real, that He is able, and that He has a kind disposition to His people. And that kind of a prayer, friend, 
is the fruit of a life that really understands who we are and who God is. And that's what Jesus commends here. So that's the first contrast. A false profession marked by hypocrisy versus sincere belief that we see exemplified in this kind of prayer that asks God for big things and believes that he's able to do them. But we come now to our second point. And here we see that false religion is also characterized by insincere word games rather than honest, God-fearing speech. So Jesus comes to the temple and he starts teaching, but he's quickly interrupted. Look at verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. These guys are representatives of the Sanhedrin, which is the highest ranking body within Judaism. And these guys say, Jesus, right now you're going to give us an answer. And here's their question, verse 23. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, Mark tells us at this point, Jesus has already been in Jerusalem for two days. And so far, he has shut down the temple marketplace. He has healed blind and lame people in the temple. He has accepted worship in the temple. And he has been teaching in the temple courts. And the Sanhedrin wants to know, by what authority do you do this stuff, Jesus? After all, they were the highest authority in Jerusalem over Judaism. And they hadn't given Jesus the authority to do these things. So where does Jesus' authority come from? It's a good question for them to ponder, but unfortunately they ask it not because they're really interested in Jesus' answer. No, they ask it to trap Jesus, and they want to trap him for two reasons. The first reason is reported in John 11, where we read that the Sanhedrin were thinking like this. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, the Sanhedrin had authority, but only because the Romans let them. And the Romans wouldn't let them have authority for very long if they acclaimed someone as the Messiah. So no, the Sanhedrin thinks if we want to keep our position and protect Israel from Rome, we must discredit Jesus and everybody else who ever claims to be the Messiah. That was their first reason. And I think that's actually a really telling reason. Because this suggests that even in these men's hearts, they believed that if the real Messiah showed up, he would be unable to defeat Rome and Israel would suffer for it. See, these religious leaders don't actually believe in the power of the God they're claiming to belong to. But all of that, that first reason, was really just a rationalization. Because they really want to trap Jesus for a second reason, which is that Jesus has been preaching against them and exposing their hypocrisy publicly throughout his entire ministry. The Sanhedrin didn't want to acclaim anybody as the Messiah, but you better believe they were never going to acclaim Jesus. They're going to do whatever they can to bring Jesus down. And so they put this question to him that they think will do the trick. Because if Jesus answers that his authority comes from any source on earth, the Sanhedrin can say, well, we're the highest authority on earth, and we don't recognize you. But if Jesus says that his authority comes from God in heaven, then they will accuse him of blasphemy, which is what they do in chapter 26. So this question is a trap. It is an insincere question. It is a game. They think, however Jesus answers, he will lose. But see, they don't know who they're trying to play this game against 
because you can't outthink God. Look at verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority that I do these things. This is a common debating technique among the rabbis. They would answer questions with questions. So Jesus has a question too, and here it is. And man, this question is really going to expose who these guys really are. Look at verse 25. He says, the baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Jesus says, you guys tell me about authority. Where does the authority of John the Baptist ministry come from? Now, this is a big problem for the Sanhedrin, and they know it immediately. They don't try to give Jesus an answer right away. Instead, they huddle up, and they try to strategize how they should answer. And here's their problem. Look at verse 25. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. See, they can't wiggle their way out of this one, whatever they say, they are putting themselves in some real danger for their, their position and their agenda. Because if these guys acknowledge that Jesus really came from God, two things will happen. First, they will expose their own wickedness. Because when John the Baptist came along, they didn't listen to him and they didn't repent. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But if these guys rejected God's real prophet, how can they be God's legitimate religious authority? They can't. But second, if they acknowledge that John came from God, then Jesus can point out, John said, I was the Messiah. To concede John's authenticity is to concede Jesus' Messiahship, and they won't do that. But if they deny that John came from God, they risked a riot. Because remember, Jerusalem is filled with all these pilgrims from all over the place, and John the Baptist's ministry was very highly viewed. And so if the Sanhedrin insults John here, they're insulting lots of these pilgrims. They're insulting people who love the Baptist that lived in Jerusalem. They are risking a riot that would challenge and imperil their authority. So they can't deny John either because they fear the crowds. But notice this. Here these guys are huddling up. And nobody in the huddle ever actually wrestles with Jesus' question. Nobody ever asks, that's a good question. Where did John's ministry come from? And what are the implications of that for how we should deal with Jesus? And they don't ask that question because it's totally irrelevant to their calculation. Because to them it doesn't matter whether God was behind John or not. They don't care about God. They don't fear God. Their whole calculus like the calculus of many false religious leaders, is entirely man-centered. What do I need to do to keep all these people around me happy? How can I say whatever I need to say to keep power? That's their game. And friends, you will see this same kind of thinking among many church leaders today, in big context and in small context alike. And it's terribly insincere. You know, the leaders of God's people are to lead courageously, Titus 1 says. It is, they are to hold firm the trustworthy word as taught and to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, friends, that is not the job description of a politician or a manipulator. That is the job description of a steward. It calls for responsible, courageous leadership. 
But like the false shepherds we heard denounced in Ezekiel this morning, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were only interested in playing political games to maintain their power. And so here's their clever answer they come up with. Look at verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, these guys' non-answer exposes them in a few ways. First, it exposes their gamesmanship. Nobody would say, I don't know about this, unless they were engaging in this kind of insincere strategy session. Second, this exposes their spiritual daftness. They confess that they don't know whether God's behind John or not. Wait, aren't you the religious authority over Judaism? How do you not have an opinion on this? Third, their gamesmanship and daftness show they don't have any legitimate spiritual authority. So fourth, they expose themselves here as being unworthy to question Jesus. And so Jesus will not dignify them with an answer to their question. With this kind of wicked attitude, they don't deserve to hear the truth about Jesus. Now, friends, what we see here is these guys playing word games and trying to manipulate people. And I've got to tell you, God hates this kind of thing. Jesus condemned word games and, and sleight of hand rhetorically earlier in this book, back in chapter 5, when he talked about not taking oaths. And the reason for this very strange se section in Matthew 5 about oaths is that in the first century, the Pharisees had invented complex rules about when you could take an oath and when you could get out of an oath that basically let you lie and get away with it to enter into contracts and walk away without consequences. We see examples of this in chapter 23. As Jesus says to them, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, then he's bound by his oath. If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. See, if you use the right language, you're bound. But if you know the tricks, you can get out of your word and not have to, to honor your contractual arrangements. It's a nasty trick. It's a word game. But here's Jesus' answer to all that in Matthew 5.37. He says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, God wants sincere speech, not political word games. James 1.26 says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Okay, we're talking about fruit, good and bad fruit, right? If our speech is always slandering people or playing these kind of like duplicitous games with the truth, that evidences false religion. Friends, do we do this? Do we play fast and loose with our words? Do we always speak non-committally? and tell half-truths presented in a false light to always protect our interests and cover ourselves? So these guys did 2,000 years ago. But see, Jesus wants his people to be people of plain, honest speech. Or let's find a different application here. Who do you fear most, men or God? These guys, they calculate and they strategize and they politic because at the end of the day, what they fear most isn't the displeasure of God. It's the opinion of people. But Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
Friends, it doesn't matter in the end what people think about us, whether people approve of us or disapprove of us. Jesus already said in this book, if you follow him, you're going to make enemies. We need to live to please an audience of one, which is God. And if that's our heart's desire, we are safe. Because when you trust your life to God, you're in the safest possible hands. Hands that are sovereign over all time. Hands that will bring about ultimate good for everyone who trusts Him. But when we are governed by a fear of people, we are unsafe. Because people aren't sovereign, because people aren't faithful, and because people are evil. Friend, who do you fear most? Are you worried always about maintaining your reputation? Are you worried about pleasing people all the time? Are you worried about having to actually pay the high cost that Jesus has talked about in this book, of enduring opposition and rejection, even from those closest to you. Friends, be warned, the fear of man is incompatible with true faith, just like insincere games-playing speech. These things often mark false conversion, because true profession is marked by fearing God and having honest speech. All right, we come now to our third point, and here we see that false religion is characterized by lip service rather than repentance. Jesus now tells a parable. Look at verse 28. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and, did, and said the same. And he, the second son, answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Okay, so we've got these two sons. The first refuses the father's summons to work, but changes his mind later and goes. And the second politely says he will go. In fact, literally in Greek, he says, I go, Lord, but he doesn't go. And Jesus says, which of them did the father's will? Now, this is easy. Even spiritually blind people, like the chief priests and the elders, get this one right. Verse 31, they said the first. And now Jesus drops the hammer on them. Verse 31, here's the application. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now once again, Jesus points to John the Baptist. And Jesus says... John came in the way of righteousness. Okay, so Jesus answers the question he just put to the leaders. Where does John's authority come from? Well, it came from God. And when John came, this is what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 4. John's ministry is in continuity with the ministry of Jesus. And John called on people to repent, to have a change of mind, just like the first son in this parable does. Now, friends, what we learn from this is that we need to have a change of mind about our sin and our disobedience to the Father, too. We need a change of mind that leads to a change of life. We need to turn away from our old life of unrepentant sin, and we need to turn in faith to Jesus and follow Him. So John said, repent, just like Jesus later said. And you know, when John said it, his ministry produced a massive response. Matthew 3, 5 says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Lots of folks came out to see John and deal with their sin. And not just seemingly respectable folks. 
Many of those who went to see John were the lowest of the low in Jewish society. We've talked about tax collectors before. In the first century, these were Jews who had betrayed their countrymen and stole the money from their neighbors and gave it to their occupiers, gave it to the Romans. These guys were considered to be so evil in the first century, they were treated as outside the community. Prostitutes, likewise, were viewed as outside the community because of their lifestyle of sexual sin. And so Jesus here draws the Pharisees' attention to two groups who were seen as so full of sin in the first century that they were seen as not even being authentic Jews anymore. And yet, when God worked through the ministry of John the Baptist, and when he called on people to repent, Jesus says many tax collectors and prostitutes went out to, uh, to John and they repented. They turned to God in faith. God's grace was greater than all their sin. And these folks became like the first son in this parable. Initially in their lives, they had rejected God's call to, to follow him, to obey. But now through John's ministry, they changed their minds, as Jesus put it. They didn't just change their minds about their sin. They changed their lives. They stopped doing the evil things they used to do. And so Jesus says, they're like the first son. They did the will of God. But in total contrast to that stands the religious leaders of Israel. You know, when John appeared in the wilderness, oh, the religious leaders came out to see him too, not because they wanted to believe, but because they wanted to attack John just like they would later attack Jesus. But John had a message for them too, Matthew 3, 7. He says, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John said to them, you guys need to repent because of their hypocrisy. But did they? Did they repent even when they saw tax collectors and prostitutes' lives changed by the grace of God? No. We saw in verse 25 of this chapter, they did not believe him by their own admission. And not only did they refuse John's call to repent, but they refused to hear John's proclamation that the Messiah was coming and that the Messiah was Jesus. And so these religious leaders are very much like the second son in our parable. They make a show of religiousness. Oh, they profess to say, yes, Lord, when they hear God's word. But in fact, they do not do the will of God. They have not believed in Christ. They have not repented of their sins. They have not borne the fruit that is produced by the regenerate life. And so as they hear Jesus' parable and they answer correctly that only the first son did the will of God, they condemn themselves because they become the example of that terrifying passage in Matthew 7, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here are guys who are so convinced that they were good with God. But Jesus says, no, in God's estimate, you rank behind the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Because the prostitutes and the tax collectors heard God's word and repented. And you didn't. And think about this. This is very much like what we've talked about in recent weeks. God took the last, the lowest of the low, and made them first forgiven and accepted into his family. 
And he took these guys who were the first in the opinion of all the people back then, the, the holy and righteous high priest and chief priests and scribes, and he made them the last because they would not listen. And in fact, as we've just read from Matthew 7, they're not just last, they're lost. Now, what does Jesus mean when he speaks of doing the will of the Father? What does Jesus require of us? Well, the will of the Father, according to John the Baptist, and Jesus' first sermon back in chapter 4, and this parable is repenting. We've got to turn away from sin, and we've got to turn to God in faith. On this side of the cross, that means we need to cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus died for our sins, and Jesus has risen from the dead. And only through Jesus can we be saved and forgiven. And if we do that, all our sin will be forgiven, just like the people back then who were considered to be so uh, sinful and unacceptable. God's grace is greater than our sin. But friends, Jesus warns in Matthew 7, and he warns here to these, these false leaders in chapter 21, that many people who profess to know God really do not, because they still want to clutch their sin. They still won't repent. Listen to the warning of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Friends, if our choice is I'd rather have my sin than Jesus, we are giving evidence of lostness. Today, friends, Jesus asks us, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. Are there areas in our lives where we are refusing to do what Jesus has told us to do? Now, of course, at times we all sin, and sometimes we sin badly, and sometimes we fall into seasons of sin. But when we sin, do we hate it? Do we recognize that it's evil? Do we confess it to God and plead for His mercy? Do we battle against it? Is there any opposition to sin within us? If so, that's good. That's how it should be. But if not, if we just say, well, you know, this is who I am, and this is what I do, and Jesus is okay with me, don't be deceived. You are like these leaders whom Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Titus 1 says, there are people who profess to know God, but deny him by their works. And friends, if that is us, we are headed for the same end that these wretches were headed for. Friends, we must turn to Christ and be saved. Because this is the third contrast. Repentance versus lip service. I think I'm going to defer the rest of this passage to next week. I think we have some important things to think about so far this morning. So um, we'll pick up here in verse 33 next week. But let's ask this as we come to our conclusion. Friends, we've got to decide in the end what our view is towards Jesus. What do we really believe? In the end, do we believe that Jesus is okay with us just because we prayed a prayer once, um, even though we never turned away from our sin? Um, but we got our fire insurance, you know. Do we think that Jesus is okay with us because, well, you know, Jesus is okay with everybody and he forgives us because that's his job? Uh, friends, I really want us to ask, who is the Jesus that we're, we think we're dealing with? Is it the Jesus of the Bible who is Lord? Who, who says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you? Or do we have some false notion of Jesus? Friends, not only must we ask ourselves, who is the Jesus that we've trusted? But I think we have to ask ourselves the questions that we've talked about today, if we profess to know him. 
Are our lives more characterized by hypocrisy or by a sincere belief that we see through a life of, of serious prayer that trusts God, that believes He's there and believes that He, he will respond to those who, who come to Him and with, a, with a humble spirit? Are our lives more characterized by insincere games-playing speech or by honest, plain speaking? Ultimately, friends, are our lives more characterized by repentance or by giving God hollow claims of allegiance that we don't really mean. Friends, tell the truth. You don't need to impress me. You don't need to impress the other people that are sitting in this room. God knows the truth about each of us, where our hearts really are. I pray this morning that God would show each one of us whether there is a false or an unclean way within us. I pray today that if some of us are, have been sitting in churches for years and we have never really bent the knee to Jesus, we've just done this because, oh, my family expects me to do it, or it's a tradition I received from my parent, or I do it to, to look godly and to feel better about myself, or I do it because I think that, that God is pleased just when I walk in the door and he doesn't care about how I, I live the rest of my life. Friends, if that is us, I pray today that you would understand what Jesus really calls upon you to do is to turn from your old life and turn to him in faith. I pray today, friends, that we would not be self-deceived about our eternal condition. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the Apostle Paul says, examine yourself. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Friends, that is the application this morning. We have seen what the false religious leaders were about. We have seen what false profession looks like. We need to examine ourselves by these things. And I pray today, friends, if we recognize that there is falsity in our lives, that we would take to heart the final words of Psalm 2. Kiss the son, that is, kiss him in homage. Bend the knee, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Friends, Jesus is not a stuffed animal that smiles at us unconditionally. Jesus is not some long-haired hippie who just gives us psychotherapy and unconditional acceptance, no matter what we do. Friends, Jesus is a Lord who demands that we submit, and he has wrath. He has wrath. I heard this week about some, some Bible program on YouTube that, that's very popular, and they'll talk all about the Bible, but they won't talk about God's wrath. You need to know Jesus is justly angry at our sin. There is wrath, and his wrath is quickly kindled. But Psalm 2 ends with a promise, which is, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, that's what we need to do today. We need to take refuge in Jesus.